Do you want to know where you are in your leadership development journey and where to focus your attention in the future to get better results? Well, if the answer is yes, I would like to invite you to take my free world-class leadership assessment today and get an instant score of your current leadership level. By taking this new and fact-based assessment, you will be able to score your current leadership level against the world-class leaders as well as the five core areas of leaderships. Number one, clarity. Number two, personal performance. Number three, leadership presence. Number four, influence. And number five, relationships. Over the years, I've worked with hundreds of professionals around the world and across all industries to help them achieve their leadership goals. So thanks to this work and the data, I have developed a solid assessment that you can take today. Now, the assessment is quick. It will just take 5-10 minutes. So there are 25 questions across the five core areas I described earlier, and you will get an instant feedback and report received in your inbox. So, are you ready to know where you are? Take the free assessment today at www.andreapetrone.com assessment. Let me repeat it again www.andreapetrone.com slash assessment So, give it a go and now it's about time for a new episode Welcome to the World Class Leader Show This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers Professionals who want to become world class leaders In this podcast we deconstruct the success of high performance leaders share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. In today's episode, I want to do something a little bit different than usual. So I've been interviewed uh, on uh, another podcast, so the Private Equity Podcast by Alex Rawlings. And uh, I think we had an amazing conversation. And I thought that could be a good idea sharing um, our findings with you as well today. And to give you a little bit of background, uh, uh, I do work with private equities uh, to help their CEOs and senior leaders in their portfolio companies. And for me, it's always fascinating having a conversation with people, organizations like, like the one that uh, is uh, uh, led by Alex, because it's important to understand what's going on in the private equity world. Many organizations, maybe you now in the audience, are working in an organization that is backed by private equities. So there are some interesting dynamics there. And I think it's worth having a conversation about CEOs, leadership in this specific environment. So today we're going to cover the common mistakes made by private equity firms and portfolio companies, how to select leaders, the importance of emotional intelligence, the element of culture, trust, teamwork, and as well as what are the good things and the bad things of private equities, and much more because it actually we touch on motivation as well. So many interesting stuff. Stay tuned because I think you're going to like it. Ready? Let's go. What's one of the mistakes that you see, uh, obviously, portfolio companies of payback businesses 
uh, making and what actions would you suggest to to correct them, please? Yeah, I think for me, Alex, is the, the drive, the urgency of changing leadership after an acquisition for me is one of the major mistakes because sometimes, you know, it's the right decision. By my experience, most of the times it's not. And I tell you why, because sometimes for the kind of changing that you want to drive an organization after that you acquired an organization, maybe the CEO that is already in the organization could be the right one. But what I see, I think there is a tendency of hiring or replacing existing CEOs with CEOs that the PEs know well and trust well. And I get it because you want to want, you know, you really want to work with a CEO that you trust, right? Mm -hmm. However, we need to consider that although maybe is a great CEO, that doesn't mean it's going to be as well the perfect CEO for the new organization. Of course. Right? Because we're looking for skills, but it's not only about that, right? So there isn't an element of having the right skills in place as CEOs. But for me, it's more interesting actually looking at the personalities of CEOs and also the different leadership styles. Because one personality could be not be the right one for the specific goals, objectives that you have for the organizations. And I think that's a kind of underestimated success factor, understanding you know, the, the personalities and the styles. And finally, I think another, another thing, they are maybe private equity are not too much interested into the succession planning. So developing more talents and leadership development within the organization after an acquisition. Sometimes it's because they're driven by short-term results. And I get it because that's the business model. However, if you really want to create more value, and more assets and better assets in the organization, it has to be, you know, with people, people development. So sometimes when I talk to the private equities, I don't necessarily see the level of urgency or giving them the right attention to this topic. And in my opinion, might be probably wrong. I agree. I think there's, it's an interesting one. It depends on the P firm you work with. I work with firms that, you know, put talent at the top of absolutely everything um, yes. and who they bring in and the selection process and whether they make a change or not is um, it's not just built on who do they know and whatever else. Um, and I'd, also I see the, the opposite really where they give too much flex to their C-suite executives and there's real underperformers in there. They need to change, but they hold on to them through fear of, of, sure. uh, of, of getting that wrong. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to many, uh, we deal lower middle market, but I've spoken to many large private equity firms. Um, and one of the big ones, which is one of the older private equity firms in, in the world established, they've got a 33% failure rate on chief executive hires um, wow. globally. Sorry, a 33% success rate um, on their chief executive hires globally. So, you know, every three, you know, they lose two. And I'm, I'm just like, it's, it's, it's madness. So, yeah, certainly there's, there's a lot more work to be done in getting, getting that right uh, with, uh, with regards to execs. Well, you know, sometimes, honestly, we, you know, we tend to generalize, right? Because based on the personal experience that we have or the clients they work with. So clearly there are some perfect examples of case studies, you know, of organization private equity are doing absolutely right. I'm just saying that these are some of the common mistakes. And I think in terms of, maybe how to approach it from a different perspective. I think it's, uh, my suggestion is spending more time on assessing really who the CEO is, right? And because sometimes the assessment is done primarily on the CV, on the profile and say, oh, you know, you have done this, you, have, you know, and et cetera. But in my, in my experience, it would be better to spend more time during the due diligence process, right? On who really is the CEO. So you can do it in, in two ways, right? So one is really asking, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it's any problem at all, asking to the CEO to do some specific assessments. I'm not talking, by the way, of the 
psychometric assessment, there are no value for what we're looking, what we're talking about. But I'm talking about core competencies assessment. So to give an example, you can absolutely assess what is their way to make decision, or what is their energy pace, or what is their attitude to accept policies or procedures from, from the top, for example. And that is important to know, right? Because if you want to drive change and you think that the new CEO needs to embrace some specific ideas or strategies, you need to have as well a CEO that is ready to do it, right? So these are a couple of examples that are to me very important. The other thing that you should do actually is just talking more with the people that are working with the CEOs. It could be the executive teams or maybe some opinion leaders in the organization and try to understand what the personality of the CEO, how, again, how he makes decisions, right? Or for example, how he approach problem when there is something something important, right? So how he feel, you know, how he deals with emotions. So these are important things. And sometimes I think they are not properly evaluated or assessed in a right way. Uh, so, this, so that's, I think, is, is the main thing about the CEOs. And about succession planning, it's, I think it's asking to the CEO as one of the first steps is, now we want you to start building your succession plan anyway, right? First, because the, the, the average tenure of a CEO now is, is you know, is always, has been actually very, very low. So I think it's absolutely a great idea to start developing the succession planning as soon as the CEO starts his job. And it's not something to keep at the end. So these are a couple of ideas that I would probably suggest. So when you mentioned, obviously, about that, that interview process and that selection uh, process, you mentioned, obviously, about using different tools um, aside from kind of what I got a psychometric or personality profiling test. Have you used any of those, whether it be competency-based tools to, to identify? And then, you know, what kind of recommendations would you have for which tools to use for in which instance? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm not normally used the, the, the big assessments that you use, you know, the, 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 the Hogan or, you know, the most popular of the shelf assessments. I use um, an assessment called PXT. And uh, it's a great assessment because, again, we assess only eight or nine core competencies and we focus on that. Now, what is interesting is because you can use, you know, as, as well, not only for assessing someone, but also start developing, you know, a leadership uh, program, for example, for this person. It could be the CEO. But what is important, we try to identify one specific core competencies that if changed, is going to have a big impact on performance because you know changing three or four, which is core competencies, essentially are behaviors, right? So changing three or four behaviors at the same time is going to be difficult, impossible, and you know people get you know concerned because they say, oh my gosh, I need to to think all of this stuff, right? No, let's focus on one, but only those they are going to make a huge difference on the performance, and that's in my opinion the great thing about this assessment I use because it's going to give you exactly that kind of perspective. And you can then, of course, benchmark with other leaders and see where you are, of course, as many assessments. Okay, makes sense. And is there any other kind of data points or, you know, areas that you kind of recommend that private equity firms look at when they're trying to assess their chief execs on top of, obviously, the usual uh, CV and obviously maybe a recommendation for search firms as well? I'm certainly interested in this. Well, that's an interesting question because, I mean, in my experience, I think uh, the typical, I'll give you an example. So emotional intelligence, right? Because there is a lot, a lot about emotional intelligence and because we always thought that, you know, the, the best CEOs are CEOs are Superman, right? They're able to, 
to make decisions in any situation, any context, you know, and regardless of what's going on in the organization and be strict and be, but also be fair. And, and that's fine. However, I don't believe anymore to that model. I believe to a model where the new generation, the future CEOs will be, will have more empathy, will read the room, understand exactly the emotions they are around them. First of all, their own emotion, but also the emotion around them. Because we are, Alex, I don't know what you think, but we are living in a, in a situation where there is this need of change and driving change every single day. So the speed of change, the pace of change is very high. I read an interesting data from, from an organization that did a big survey that said that 75% of CEOs expecting to change their business model in the next three years is massive. So if that is true, you need to really have on board CEOs that are able to embrace change as soon as they see an opportunity. So for me, if I need to choose one single thing is assessing their ability to adapt for change. Because if they're not able to adapt, you can have your best CEOs in place, but you will not be able to drive change and, make, and bring the organization to the next level in the next three years. Interesting. And you mentioned also earlier about the acquisition process. Now, this is an area I see private equity firms, whether add-on or, or new portfolio companies, there's a lot of mistakes made here, not only just on whether the business is good or not, but also looking at obviously focusing on people. What are some of the areas that you work with, with the, the actual executive teams when they're going through those acquisitions and integrations and uh, kind of share with us maybe some of the, the, the you know, the positives and um, solutions maybe that you work with some of these people on to, to drive better outcomes? Yeah. So as I said earlier, most of the time I'm actually involved during M&As. Now, so there is always an element of a pre and work. So essentially is looking at the different culture between the two organizations that are merging or they are acquired if there is, a, uh, if there is an acquisition that way. So, and then that's very important. And as we know, you know, cultural fit is one of the main reasons why main M&As unfortunately fail. So I, I still believe that many investors, investment banks or investment organizations, they probably they are still underestimated importance of doing a cultural fit mm-hmm. during the due diligence process. So that's an element of that. But most of my work is essentially is after the M&A, so after the acquisition, because normally the first thing, that happen after that is okay now we need to work together and now we have two different teams that don't they don't know each other first they don't trust each other and they need to start working together and sometimes with a very blurred vision so they they don't exactly know how they need to build the new proposition i mean of course there are some big kpis but you know then translating into management in actionable goals, that's something completely different, right? So I, I'm working right now with the two different uh, uh, acquisitions. And uh, what's interesting is, so the two teams are very, very different. So essentially there is an, an acquire that is a typical corporate organization and the acquired companies are more entrepreneurial. And that's typical, that happens so many times. And that is already a big cultural clash, right? Because the, these are entrepreneurs that now they need to work with others and they don't necessarily accept their role and their situation. And I'm sure that, you know, you, you came, you know, you came across something very similar. So there is an element of that, that it's already an element of potential conflict. So you need to be very careful how to deal with, with that different identities between the teams. So there is an element of working on a purpose, working on identity, on the value. And that's one of the first things that you normally 
uh, you do or I do when I start de developing the process. But now another important, important thing is the element of trust. So trust is by far the most successful factor why teams work and why teams are successful. But building trust now in online world, because I'm sure that you, 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 you have seen the same, we are seeing M&As done only on Zoom, right? Or primarily on Zoom, when there is you know, teams working together for the first time and they don't even meet in person. And hopefully the situation is gonna change, change soon, of course, but that's what happened. So I realized that I was working with a team and these two new teams, they never met. So what we did, we decided to, to launch, for example, a, a couple of days, corporate events or retreat or workshop, but we spent a lot of time on making sure that people, they know each other very well. It's not just a personal thing, the social element. It's also because they need to understand what different skills and abilities they can bring to, to, the, to the new team, right? To the new organizations. Because otherwise we create a lot of bias, right, Alex? Because we think that others know what we don't know. So when we start assuming, that, that's the beginning of a failure. So we need to really understand each other. So there is a lot of work, unfortunately, to be done there on identity, purpose, the why, the big why, and as well as on building trust together. And that's, if you like, is the first element of that. The second element is more, if you like, tangible because we start working on what are the expected behaviors as a team, as a new team, we need now to embrace. And we normally we come up with what I call the rules of the game or the, if you like, the behavioral manifesto where everyone agrees, okay, you know what, we are gonna behave in this way because we understand, we appreciate the difference that we have, right? And after that is really when we start to do the business work. And when I say business work, it essentially start developing new strategies. Actually, one step back is maybe starting with a new position because sometimes after an M&A, you need to re rethink about your value proposition and your position in the market. And after that is when the juicy work starts, when you start developing new priorities. So the new strategies, and then I had been to, through the process of strategic planning, essentially, so defining from so many priorities, setting to the three or four big priorities to, to, to follow, and then helping the team across the months to, for implementation. Because otherwise, especially at the beginning, my experience, Alex, for the new teams, uh, if you leave them alone after just you know, one or two interventions, et cetera, you're not going to necessarily solve the problem. So it needs time for a team to learn how to work together. So in other words, there are different approaches, so different frameworks, but in my mind is really forming then developing and then really start performing. So you need to understand every single phase requires time. And if you are a private equity owner, you need to understand that too, because I know that you have a different timeline, unfortunately. So you're driven again by the sense of urgency, but you need to respect the fact that teams, they need time. Unfortunately, they need time to start working together and perform at the best. And sometimes, honestly, I see CEOs maybe pushing too hard because you, they want to get results immediately, but the teams, they are not maybe ready yet. So these are a couple of ideas, examples that um, I think is good to share with you. You mentioned that, you know, giving teams time to, you know, for, I think there's a management theory that I've read, is forming, storming, norming, performing, one. and going through that process. Is there anything other than time that you would recommend if you're a private equity investor and you're looking at the team you've got, that they should be maybe considering more than, right, we need to make a change, we need to do here, which obviously I appreciate fits the, the executive search model well, but is there anything they can be doing to really understand what they, what they could be communicate, communicating with their exec teams or equally 
in order to understand if there is a if there is a good fit here or if they do need to make a change? Well, uh, one suggestion that I would like to give to private equities, I know that few private equities are already doing this. They start to build this community model. So where they, what they essentially do, they put together the different portfolio companies and they are helping them through facilitation, through other processes to start really spending more time together. So because I strongly believe to the power of cross-pollination anyway. And I think the cross-pollination might happen within the two teams that are merging together, but also within teams that are working under the same umbrella, which is the private equity. And I don't believe many private equities are already doing this. So, so yes, to some extent, they, they want to leverage the fact they're working with a, with a number of portfolio companies, but in the reality, they're not necessarily building specific tools or strategies or solutions to make sure that they're spending more time together. So I think that's for me is a big one because honestly, if you're a CEO and you get acquired, one of the things is in the back of your mind is how can I get the most out of that besides money, right? Besides strategy, besides supporting on developing new markets, et cetera, is how can I get the most out of the community that has been formed under the same umbrella? And I think the private equity should probably do a little bit more work there on how can we facilitate more this cross-pollination between different teams. And you're going to exactly understand you know, how, how that works. And also by doing so, you will share best practices and best practice by far one of the most important thing when you start developing new ideas right because another thing that i notice is many teams especially those that are coming from the corporate world so teams that are in the corporate environment they haven't been necessarily too much focused on the outside on the external world because they are so much busy on working within organizations so that cross-pollination doesn't really happen because they're, they're not much open to the external world i think private equity offered this incredible opportunity so would be you know ways not 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 using it okay i'm interested to to hear your thoughts on this we get a lot of similar answers uh with regards to this question but for somebody to spend so much time with chief executives appreciate you know we speak to a lot but we don't spend huge amounts of time um with those individuals over long periods it's usually short periods of intense communication what three attributes do you believe make a top performing chief executive number one is empathy by far i think empathy is underrated again i don't believe to the superman model anymore that was for the old days so but sometimes some private equity still believe you know the best CEO is the one that's strong is powerful and doesn't doesn't say no he does say no to people etc no i think empathy is the number one so empathy curiosity absolutely because curiosity is not just important for understanding what's going on in your organization and, and, and asking to clients what's going on so curiosity has to be Mm-hmm. You know, one of the the, more, the the biggest really skills that everyone has, but also looking at the future for what we discussed before, Alex, is we don't know where we are going now. We don't know what's going to happen in the next three or five years, not even 10 years. So if you don't have a very high level of curiosity, you will never be able to understand and to see the opportunities and maybe to uncover something that is not there yet in terms of innovation, disruptive model. So for me, curiosity is big. And maybe the third one, I would say, it could be maybe this element of being very vulnerable and open. And again, back to my first point, not many CEOs are because they think that being vulnerable means being weak. And I think that's a very, very big misunderstanding. Being vulnerable actually just means being open to others, be open to feedback, because if you're not open to receive feedbacks, to listen to others, 
you will never give the right feedback to others. So I think that's for me, it's a game changing. So, and I know many CEOs are actually changing as we speak, they understand that. And I'm so glad to see the CEOs that are changing their perspective about these three elements. I agree with the, the the feedback side and that vulnerability of people understanding that you're not perfect and people understanding that you're not the, exactly. the ultimate, you don't know everything. And that's why you've got a team around you. You know, there's a, there's a reason that there's a, a three core competencies in a C-suite and the CEO does not know everything about finance. The CEO does not know everything about potentially about operations, maybe about commercial, you know, you've, you build your team around you with the strengths that you need in order to, uh, to fulfill that. And you have to listen to people to, to get that feedback. Well, honestly, it's good. It's good to not know anything. And I think it's, it's just a way of building your self-awareness. Mm-hmm. It's okay not knowing everything. And honestly, I don't remember any CEO that was born as CEO anyway. So you become a CEO and the first thing that you realize is, oh gosh, I don't know more than 50% of things are happening here. And that's absolutely fine. And just admitting is a fantastic way of being vulnerable with others. So don't be concerned about what other people think because people, they will understand that, that that's, that's your new role and you will be, you know, as I say, like a tennis machine, you're going to receive a lot of balls every single second you need to decide what balls you want to pick and not every ball is is good with you and some some ball you will not be able to catch it anyway so and people they will understand that absolutely so as a supplier into the industry and working with chief execs what what do you love about the private equity industry and equally what do you dislike about it please the best thing about private equity i think they are bringing so many opportunities for people to learn what's going on in the market. Because I think if you're working in the, with a private equity, if you're backed by the private equity, you get their exposure, the experience, the data, the opportunities they see every single day. So in other words, I see them as a kind of a pioneers of innovation and disruption and disruption too. And that's for me, it's amazing. The opportunity that you can have by working with a private equity. Another thing as well is, as, as I said before, the fact that working on a portfolio companies, this cross-pollination for me, it's massive and you can have it. Because remember the CEOs, they feel isolated most of the time. So having the opportunity to speak with other CEOs in the portfolio companies, for me, it's, it's fantastic. On the other end, so I think it's, it's the reason why I maybe I work with private equities as well, is the fact that maybe they don't give too much importance to developing people, to developing the teams. Maybe they're overly looking at the short-term results. And uh, we need to remember that there is no company that can be can achieve fantastic results without the quality of their people. And most importantly, the quality of their teams. I strongly believe teams are not a collection of values, but teams actually are performance unit. So if you, if you really understand how to unlock the power of teams, you're gonna skyrocket. So that's for me, something interesting to consider. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a coach, what are your influences? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Well, many, many influences, of course. I think if I need to choose maybe three, one is uh, James Clear, because, you know, his book, The Atomic Habits, is actually one of the books I give to my clients as a first thing. They need What's to the name read. of that book? Sorry. Atomic Habits. Oh, Atomic Habits. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Atomic yeah. Habits from James Clear is great because, uh, you know, we've been talking about behaviors. That's his for me, the most practical, but also with a lot of data and studies, they say exactly how to change your behavior. So for me, it's a number one book. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other book and also influencer for me is absolutely 
Stephen Kotler. Not many people know Stephen Kotler is a neuroscientist. He's actually he's not a neuroscientist, but he's someone that works on the neuroscience place. I'm also a neuroscience and certified coach. And essentially, he has written many books, but the last book, The Heart of Impossible, is an amazing book that explains exactly how to unlock your motivation to drive performance. And it's fantastic for people that really want to go to the next level. So for this show, is a fantastic, actually, book to read. And finally, I can't, uh, I, I have to say Patrick Lencioni, because Patrick Lencioni uh, has written many books and uh, one of his most popular books, you know, The Five Temptations of a CEO, is absolutely perfect for what we're talking about. So what are the five temptations and what you need to do in order to avoid, you know, to, to, you know, to fall into these, these traps. But also, as you, I'm a big fan of podcasts, so I listen to, I don't know, 10, 15 podcasts, or I spend at least one hour per day on, on listening. I have my own podcast, and by the way, it's called The World Class Leaders Show, and, uh, and for me, it's important because podcasts are one of the most beautiful ways to learn from others, and there are so many incredible influences there. You just need to be very, you know, uh, you have to pick and choose the right one because otherwise you might, you might uh, lose a lot of time. You know, and so your, your podcast is great and that's why I wanted to be here because I think you you provide a different perspective. So there are many podcasts that are very good. So on this page, I think m and Science for me is one of the most interesting one and uh, the private equity fancast as well is great for the guys in, 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 in the US. So yeah, so these are the, the, the main ones. Absolutely, it's a couple of uh, couple of new books there, uh, certainly for me. But I think it's wonderful what we get access to nowadays to uh, to be able to find things out uh, and uh, learn things. So, Andrea, if anybody's obviously listening to this and wanting to reach out, how best do they uh, do they contact you, please? Yeah, thank you. So I'm very very active on LinkedIn, as you probably realize, Alex. So I'm, I'm posting quite frequently. I'm there, so you can connect with me anytime. So I respond. I post a lot of about these things, about CEOs, about uh, in, in investment, m and teams. So that's, I think, is the best way to follow my tips, understand uh, what I do and what I say. But also my website, so www.andreapetrone.com. You can find a lot of things there. So there's my newsletter, there are my podcast, there are a lot of articles there, right? So there are a lot of actually client case studies too. So you can see exactly how I get involved and what kind of methodology I use. So if you're interested in the space, that's probably it's a good place to, to go. Perfect. And one final question. As a parting gift for any chief executive, private equity investor, as a coach who's also, I'm sure, works with many uh, executives at different levels, what one thing do you see kind of the most common area that people need to work on? Um, or what one piece of advice would you share with anybody to, to improve their game? Yeah, for me, it's unlocking motivation because we get distracted by so many things happening at any single time. And uh, sometimes we get bogged down by what's going on. And if you are a CEO in particular, I think you, you receive a lot of stress for what's going on because, again, as I was, as I was saying before, you are pulled by many different forces. It could be the board, it could be the market, it could be the client, it could be your team. So it's going to drain a lot of energies and you're gonna feel isolated. So if you're able to unlock your intrinsic motivation, you will be able to cope with the high level of stress and energy that is gonna require in your work. Because you know, I could have response, you know, answering emotional intelligence again, empathy. There are many different things that you need to learn as a CEO. But if you're able to be driven by a strong sense of internal motivation, you're gonna do it. And I think for me, probably is the most important thing. 
I love that. I love that a lot. Yeah, I think finding your inter- intrinsic motivation is uh, absolutely key and intrinsic and extrinsic are uh, two areas that uh, certainly when you understand yourself, what you're really pushing for, it can make a uh, make a major difference. Well, Andrea, thank you very much for joining us. I'm really, I think we could talk all day about this kind of stuff because I think it's fascinating on people performance. But yeah, thank you for joining us and I really appreciate your insight and uh, sharing all your knowledge today. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode. I hope you got some valuable insights today and that you can apply in your business. As always, I love to hear your thoughts about this episode, what you like most, but also what else you want me to cover in the future episodes. Now, this podcast is not about me, so I want to make sure that you get what you need in order to be more successful. So drop me an email at andrea at andreapetroni.com or find me on LinkedIn and mention that you listened to this episode. And if you want to support the show, the best way is to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast, but also to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. This will make our episodes more visible so we can impact more people. And finally, go to my website, www.andreapetroni.com, where you can learn a bit more about me, my work, and subscribe for our weekly newsletter, where we summarize the insights of all our podcast episodes. Check there as well the previous articles. All right, so thank you again for being here and I hope to see you next time. Bye for now.